Welcome to the first live Tabletop Gaming podcast. I am Matt Jarvis. I'm the editor of Tabletop Gaming magazine. You may recognize my face from the first page of the magazine. It's probably the one you screw up and turn into Kindle uh, first. Uh, on my right, we have James Wallace. James, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Uh, James is a designer and contributor to Tabletop Gaming, and he's kind of the man you need to talk to if you want to know anything about Spiel de Jahr's winners, good ones, crap ones, everything, really. All of them. Uh, on my left, we have Richard Janssen-Parks. Hello Richard. there. Uh, he's our role-playing expert, which means he's seen more D20s than probably anyone else alive. Uh, and up on the end, we have Owen Duffy. Owen, how are you doing? Oh, not bad, thank you. Uh, he is our resident, uh, well, you write the How We Made features for the magazine, so you go behind the scenes with designers. You're also uh, one of the reviewers for the magazine. It's a panel of uh, tabletop gaming contributors. Uh, we will be taking questions. If you want to ask a question at any point about anything, it can be about the magazine. It can preferably not be about me or anything to do with me. Uh, but if you want to ask James loads of questions, that's great. Just dive in any time, stick your hand up, we'll get a microphone to you, and we'll go like that. But I think we're just going to have a general discussion about what we've been playing, what we've been seeing, what's been interesting us. So we'll start on the right with James. James, what have you been playing? Um, I was just going to say, if you're going to ask questions, the question that's not allowed is, why did you give my game a bad review? Because the answer is, because it's not very good. <laughs> what have I been playing? It's a good question. I tend not to play games when I come to events like this. I get into conversations. I come to games events for the conversations, to meet people, to talk about stuff and esoteric stuff, and to wander around the stands and look at the, the strange little games that are coming out of nowhere that may be kickstarting that are still at the prototype stage, of which there are several here looking really interesting. And I can't remember the names of any of them because I have an appalling memory. But it's usually the sign of a really vibrant, interesting game scene, people producing their own stuff and wanting to bring it to market. And I think uh, I'm, I'm excited for the next few months. That's a really great way to start off. The man that has not seen any games here. We'll go to Richard. Richard's <laughs> seen some games. Games. Fortunately, I have seen some games. Well, this will be a very awkward podcast. We will essentially say, <laughs> I'm not we don't play games, we just turn up and pretend. <laughs> That's the secret. No, so um, as you said, I'm mostly the RPG guy, so it makes sense that uh, while I've not been playing that many sort of standard RPGs here, I've been trying out lots of the RPG in a box type games, the sort of gemless RPGs. Um, Escape from the Dark Castle is one that I tried out yesterday. And I think it's a, probably a fairly good endorsement of that playtest that uh, we bought it this morning. It's a really fascinating sort of take on old school D&D style adventures, but where you are probably enough trying to escape from a rather dark castle. But rather than starting out as sort of fearsome uh, uh, warriors or mages, I think I played as a blacksmith. Uh, we had a cook and a tailor. Unsurprisingly, we died on the very first card played. Apparently, we're the first group to ever do that. In fact, they came and checked that we were playing the rules right, and they determined actually, yes, we were playing the rules correctly, we just sucked. And you bought the game on the back of this. You bought the game on the back of we sucked at it and we died immediately. I'm determined to prove it that I can win. Satisfaction. This is the one that has like a very Citadel cover, right? Like black and white, yes, very black like and retro. White. Also, on the retro theme, um, they've just released, I'm not sure, um, a soundtrack for the game, and it's available on Spotify, but the only other a physical form, I think, that you can actually buy it in is a cassette tape. And I don't think I've had one of those in my house for about 15 years, but um, I actually tr found the soundtrack uh, this morning, and I woke up my wife in our hotel room by playing ominous uh, dungeon sounds. Apparently it was not the best way to crawl out of bed at 7am on a Sunday morning. More fool me, I suppose. 
relationships and dungeons can go well together <laughs> in certain situations. But, uh, I mean, moving on to you, what have you been playing? Has it been involving any dungeons? Uh, no, no dungeons for me, uh, although my wife is currently back up in Glasgow. She's running a half marathon as we speak, whereas I'm sitting down here eating pizza and playing games. Um, I think I know who's having a better time. But, um, yeah, so I have played Keyforge. Has anyone uh, had the chance to give that a shot? One guy in the audience has played Keyforge. What do you think, man? It was good, yeah. I really enjoyed it. I played it twice, actually, because Keyforge is, for folks who don't know, uh, the new game from Richard Garfield, who's like designed some games and stuff. Um, he uh, made this as a, a Fantasy Flight are calling it a unique card game. So you buy a complete deck, you don't get to do any deck building, any customization, and you just have to work with what you've got. There are all these different factions with different abilities. Um, and I was slightly kind of concerned. I thought, is it going to be a gimmick? Is it going to just give you stuff that's completely unplayable and unusable? But the two games that I've had have been really good. They've been dramatic and swingy. There have been lots of kind of interesting dilemmas. So, you know, it's two for two at the minute. I'm going to play a lot more of it and see if it can kind of hold up in the long term. But it certainly seems like more than a gimmick to me. I'm quite impressed by it so far. This is Garth, Richard Garfield, the man behind Magic the Gathering, etc. Yeah, and also uh, Bunny Kingdom, and King of Tokyo, and King, yeah, yeah, King of Tokyo, and uh, yeah, Netrunner. So he's done a few. And do you remember what deck you're playing with? Because I also managed to play Keyforge, and I was playing with I think the names are procedurally generated. So yes. it's something unbelievably elaborate. Yeah, is it like a mid noughties like emo band album my, oh. or something. Uh, well, my first one was called right. So the the names are all randomly generated. My first deck was called Muscular Rodeo Bastion. I think I saw that film. Which if, if it, <laughs> did you see it? Did you see it in the dungeon? <laughs> Um, you know, if anyone wants to start calling me that, that's fine, you know. Um, and then the second one uh, was called something else, which was not so memorable. But um, I lost both games and still had a good time, so that's probably, you know, bodes well. And the thing I thought was interesting is, although I, I kind of went into it thinking, oh, this will be magic, but, like, everyone has a different deck. and It's, it's nothing like magic. You don't have mana, you don't build up, you just pick. So there are three factions in a deck. You have 12 cards of each, and you just pick one to play that turn. You can play as many cards as you want and you just keep going until you run out of cards or decide not to go any further. So it has a really different kind of flow because you're limited essentially by kind of what you draw but also how you plan ahead. Yeah, and I mean that flow is interesting because you can quite quickly build up quite an impressive board state but there's also a lot of stuff in there that either uh, kind of makes some of your creatures unavailable or just wipes your board or wipes both sides of the board. So you have this kind of sequence of, it's almost like a, a bunch of little miniature games inside a game. You build up a board state, you try and exploit it as much as you can and then pretty soon it's gone. Um, so I'm keen to introduce it to some of my magic playing friends and see what they make of it. But yeah, it impressed me. Right. Other than uh, the games you haven't been playing here, James, what have you been playing outside? Well, I've been playing a lot of Spill as Yarn Winners <laughs> because that's what I write about. Um, uh, Azul and I've, it's, Azul is interesting because it, people go, oh, Azul, fresh new designer. He's not a fresh new designer. He's won the Spill as Yarn twice. But people forget that because he did it 20 years ago and he did it in collaboration with Wolfgang Kramer, one of the gods of German games design. So everyone went, well, these are Wolfgang Kramer games and we don't know who this other guy is. He's the guy who went on to design Asvel. Um, this being this year's Spiel This year's Spiel des Jahres winner. Um, beautiful aesthetic games. I love games that I think are going to break out into the mainstream and I think Azul and to a lesser extent Sagrada as well because these are games that are just beautiful to look at and really interesting to watch people play. They work not just in games cafes, but in mainstream cafes as well. 
um, and family games as, as well. People like games with good-looking bits. And looking at uh, Essen in particular, oh, which yes. is next month and is kind of the, the hub of new German games in particular, what's catching your eye as potentially 2019 Spiel des you know, interesting gameplay or... Or I, I have no well. idea. The nominees come out each year, and I will never have heard of t about half the things on the list. I mean, literally never have heard of them, because they'll be stuck. A lot of them are German-only releases at that, at that point. Um, I genuinely don't know. Also, I'm crap about new releases. I'm very bad about following new release schedules. This is great. I'm old and cynical. I don't get, it, I don't get <laughs> excited about new stuff that's coming out, because I know it's going to suck. That sounds like me and music. Yeah. <laughs> Richard, role-playing games. What have you been playing? Tell us. Well, so, um, as ever with these things, some of the most interesting games are things that aren't quite available to play sort of here, but are out or are on the verge of coming out. Um, one of the most interesting games for me was uh, Vampire the Masquerade, 5th uh, edition, uh, just come out, it's on the Modifius stall uh, over in the corner, and that's a really interesting game, the reviews in the magazine uh, for this month, and... It's interesting because I, it's a game I went into expecting to hate. Because as a vampire game, it's, it, there's a big focus on what is essentially the, the only big the sort of main thread of vampire a story of you being, um, of the, the vampires being essentially a, a bad guys, of them needing to drink blood and do these horrible things. And... I am terrible at playing bad guys in RPGs. Even in video games, when there's sort of a, the chance to, in Mass Effect, to punch someone in the face, I, I reach for it and then go, no, no, I'll be, I'll be good, I'll be nice, I'll be kind. Get all of the Paragon points. Um, so I went into that with an air of, I don't want to enjoy playing as a bad guy. And especially because in Vampire Masquerade, it's set in something approximating the real world. And even in, in RPGs, when you do bad things in fantasy worlds, there's very much uh, that, the emotional gap there that doesn't feel quite so bad. You know, if you, in Dungeons & Dragons, raise an army of undead and attack a city with a dragon, you're doing an objectively bad thing, but uh, it's, it's fantasy bad things. But a jumping someone in London and murdering them that's a little closer to home. It's got a bit more of an edge Maybe to it. Maybe for you. Maybe for me. Um, but when I actually got the game in my hand and, and played it, it's actually a really effective way of telling vampire stories. It worked much better than I thought it would. It was, so that's been, a, again, something that I didn't expect to enjoy, but really, really did. It's definitely worth a look. And there's a vampire has a particularly mature tone, we should say. So oh, how does that? Yes. Because it's been vampire's been around since like the mid '90s, early '90s. Uh, but obviously, 1991, I believe. Thank you, James. You're welcome. I'm old. It's always good to bring a human Wikipedia with you. Um, <laughs> but vampire's been around for ages, and obviously in the mid '90s, nobody really, you know, it was a different time, completely culturally, and there were a lot of things you could maybe say and do in games that. Nowadays, not so much. So how does that fly in the fifth yeah, edition? I mean, that, that was also one thing that I was somewhat hesitant about going in. There was some, in the beta preview that they put out, there was some stuff there that sort of maybe walked the line of tastelessness a little bit too far over. But um, certainly in the core book, they've, they've really reeled that in. In fact, it's, I think, one of the first 
RPG books I've seen to have an entire chapter on safe and a considerate play. There's an entire bit on making sure that, you know, that the things you do in this game, which will often be fairly nasty and horrible, are nevertheless things that, you're, that your table is comfortable with, that you won't make anyone upset. And that sounds like something that is easy to ignore, especially when you're used to playing with the same four or five people for 20, 30 years. But I think it's something that is generally worth including in, in lots of games, and they've done a very, very good job of handling it, I think. Owen, at the end, what have you been playing? Yeah, I've been playing a bunch of stuff. Um, if folks don't know, I'm working on a book at the moment. Uh, Richard's one of the, the uh, collaborators as well. Um, and it's available to order now on Backerkit. Um, <laughs> but uh, it just means I'm playing loads and loads of stuff. I recently really enjoyed uh, the combined Century Spice Road and Eastern Wonders. Uh, that is the game from Emerson Matsuchi, uh, where you're a spice trader. It starts off on the, the kind of silt road between Europe and Asia. The second game in the series is uh, set in the, the spice islands around Indonesia. And uh, you can combine the two and make this sort of super game, which is actually, it doesn't add much to the complexity, but I think it's much better than either of them played alone. And I'm really interested to see where he goes with the third game in the series, which I think is coming out next year, and how you're going to be able to combine all three. It's like, it's kind of like the Sonic and Knuckles of, of board gaming. And I am So you're really, saying I'm in 10 myself. years it will be completely crap. <laughs> <laughs> I would dispute that about Sonic and Knuckles. Oh, right, you mean it's become completely crap? It's become right, really okay. crap. Yeah. Sonic and Knuckles is fine, but that was, that was like the turning point for the Sonic series, really, wasn't it? Um, other things I've been playing, I really enjoyed the new uh, Birmingham edition of Brass. If, if folks haven't seen that, it's by uh, Martin Wallace, and it's this new edition from Roxley Games. The production is gorgeous, the components are great. It's got a day and a night side to the board. Um, so if you want to play like, um, like Birmingham by night, um, you can do that. Uh, it's, it's just this really kind of deep, um, absorbing economic strategy game about the Industrial Revolution. Um, and then just to kind of step on, uh, step on the RPG ground a wee bit, I also recently played Starcrust, which is based on an RPG called Dread. You've got a Jenga tower, and you're playing two characters who really, really want to, but really, really shouldn't. So you've got uh, this... Play Jenga. Hmm? Play Jenga, you mean? I do not play Jenga. I do not mean play Jenga. Yeah. Um, I mean playing something entirely different. Um, so you've got these two characters in a romance story who for some reason, there's uh, some reason that they shouldn't be together and they are trying to kind of resist those impulses. And if the Jenga tower ever falls while you're playing, then they, uh, they fall prey to their mutual attraction and uh, you, you play out what happens as a result of that. So my wife and I played it. I was a university professor she was a university librarian, and we were trying to uh, raise Nyarlathotep and bring about the end of the world. But my character, having discovered true love, decided he didn't want the world to end. He wanted to be with the librarian. So she obviously uh, had him committed to a mental institution where he raved for the rest of his days about dark things in the shadows. So yeah, it's a, it's a love story game. <laughs> so a fairly standard a night in for you guys then yeah pretty much um, but yeah people have done interesting things with it like there was one uh, couple who played it and they played dogs whose owners were getting a divorce but the dogs still really liked each other and wanted to stay together there are uh, there's a podcast where two guys played um, two dudes on the pro wrestling circuit um, who you know, had this, this mutual attraction, um, which I don't want to cast aspersions on professional wrestling, but it's maybe not kind of what you think of when you think of like Hulk Hogan and, and Randy Savage or whatever. Again, I'm really dating myself with these references, aren't I? Well, his name is Randy. 
Yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. um, so yeah, that's, that's some of the stuff I've been playing. Um, but yeah, I really love games like that that have such a, a potential for players to bring their own creativity towards to, to it. It's uh, it's a lot of fun. So along the, would you compare it to like Fog of Love in terms of that? You're yeah. given kind of the building blocks of a relationship, and then you kind of. I see what you did there it. because it's a game with a Jenga tower, and you've just mentioned building blocks. So that's, that's, that is that, that was deliberate. Well done. Uh, well done. Deliberate. Um, yeah, I mean, it's much more freeform than Fog of Love. Um, I think Fog of Love maybe kind of it's a board game that kind of sneaks into RPG territory and gets people maybe uh, expressing themselves in ways that are quite comfortable to them if they've played board games. Whereas this is much more about kind of improv drama. Have any of you played Dice Hospital, which is out on the floor? Yeah, I just played that last night, actually. What did you think? I thought it was quite a grim concept. Um, <laughs> like, Dice Hospital, everyone... <laughs> um, it's, it's a really interesting puzzle. You're, 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 you're running a hospital, your patients are dice. Uh, if their condition deteriorates, then the numbers go smaller. If their condition improves, then the number gets bigger. There's something called the neglect phase in it, which is <laughs> just <laughs> struck me as a little bit grim. Um, but you're trying to, you score points by curing patients all at once. So there are situations where you want to keep people just ill enough that you don't have to let them out of your hospital so that you can let them out in a big bunch on the next turn and score more points. Um, but yeah, I mean, as, as a, a puzzle, I thought it was really intriguing. You're gradually adding more specialists and more uh, kind of facilities to your hospital to let you manipulate the dice in a lot of interesting ways. So there's that kind of engine building element. Um, and yeah, um, I would actually like to play it solo. It, it does one to four. And just because it is such a, such a cool little optimization puzzle, I think it would work really well as a solo game. So I'm, I'm keen to give it an Another shot. As I was saying, there's very little rolling of dice in the game. You kind of roll them to set their initial, yeah. <laughs> to see how ill they are is kind of a literal roll of the die. But from then on, it's more like it's worker play, it's meeples. Yeah. Basically, uh -huh. you're, you're assigning them around different rooms. Yeah, and, and then and you so get on. specialists who are really good at treating um, different types of diseases and different types of patients. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of scope for the game to sort of branch out in different directions once you start playing. Yeah, and the folks behind it clearly did their research because it's not just doctors, nurses, it's, you know, urologists and the specialists are specialists. Yeah. They're, they're what I would really like to see is a homeopathy expansion where you uh, play this meeple and it does absolutely nothing but takes a bunch of money off the patient. Sorry to any homeopaths. <laughs> I'm not sorry to any homeopaths. Are we heading for a kind of a, is, is the hospital theme coming up as one of those games themes that blips from time to time because there's, there's this which is a fairly high profile release but there's also home, uh, Holding On which is not mm. here but is coming out at Essen which, for those who don't know it, is a game in which it's a co-op game in which you're a group of palliative care nurses tending for a man who is dying and who will die during the course of the game. A feel-good game. It's well, it's I've had I've got a copy. I've been sent a copy for review, and I have a really really hard time convincing people that this is something we should play. I but think when they give it the tagline, a game about death and regret, that's part of what makes it difficult to get people to play. But I love seeing people exploring these concepts. Yeah. I, I, think, I mean, this is what excites me about games generally. But games traditionally are about succeeding. They're about upbeat things. They're you know we play games in order that someone will will succeed. This yeah. is the antithesis. Of, I mean, the story that the game tells out is it has a resolution. It has a cathartic resolution, and you will feel satisfied at the end, if not necessarily good. But convincing people that it's, poor, it's not a traditional board game in, in any sense, and I don't think it appeals necessarily to people who are after traditional board game things, but I think it's a really, really interesting development. Do you think that's kind of a, a sign of 
the, the, the continuing maturity of board games as sort of as as a medium for telling stories and stuff. Because obviously, um, uh, video games and and even films to an extent started off generally being sort of look at this incredible spectacle and feel great about things and jump on goombas and hear a great noise. But then obviously there are horror films, horror video games, where if you're if you're having fun, then you're probably something kind of wrong with you. Yeah, I mean, for a long time, I mean, video games in particular, the, the, the idea of the happy ending has, you know, you hope there'll be a happy ending, or some games you can, depending on whether you do well or badly, you get the happy or the bad ending. But there are games out there that are just downbeat. They just finish on a, a downbeat note. And role-playing games and indie games in particular and story games have done that for a long, long time. There's some really brilliant games out there. This is the first example I can think of that is unequivocally a board game. It is, well, it doesn't have a board, but it has board game components, and that is the experience you will have. And there's resource management elements um, and proper play. It, yeah, I, I think it is a sign of maturity. It's a, a grown-up game It's a, with a grown-up theme, and I really hope it does well. Um, I don't think it's going to win the Spiel des Jahres. <laughs> Do you have to add that tagline to every single game you play? <laughs> every Just single like the game. The smallest seal of approval or not. Yes. But I have, has it, I mean, have you played Holding On at all? I've played, I demoed it at UK Games Expo. Um, I, what I like about it, apart from the, the overall theme and kind of trying to tackle something so mature, is the idea that you're slowly uncovering bits of this story, not necessarily in chronological order. So much of it is about interpreting the information that you get in the order that you get it. So there's a system where, first of all, you reveal a card, and it's got an illustration on it, but it's kind of blurry, and it's ill-defined. And then as you get more information out of this patient, um, you replace those cards with ones that are more, more clear and more easily understandable. And you do get this kind of sense of all these different points of information coming together to tell a whole story. I mean, I think as a, you know, as a piece of literature, it's quite an impressive way to handle it, quite a, a, a sort of slightly disorienting way to, to handle it. Um, so yeah, I'm keen to just find a group that's willing to play, you know, a, a eight or 10 game series about mm. somebody slowly dying um, and, and just <laughs> uncover the whole thing. Yeah. I've, I've played it a couple of times. I also played a demo uh, over the summer and then have been playing at home and Although I really enjoyed it at first, the, my one concern, and it will take some more plays, is when I played the scenario the first time, which I played with Richard, uh, we won on the very last card draw, and it was fantastic. It was a really great sensation. You know, we'd uncovered memories. We'd kept him alive, which is a little bit more important than just fleecing him for his life story. Uh, but when we played at home, we got absolutely trashed. Mm. He just died. Uh, and we were playing with fewer players, so I don't know that might be an element of it. But it's not a legacy game. You don't progress you have to then repeat that scenario and the memories aren't specific to scenarios. There's no uh, interior storyline within that scenario. You kind of are given a blurb led into one scenario and if you don't finish, you have to keep replaying it until you then get to the next chunk of the story. And so, although it will take more plays to find out, that's the one, one area where I'm a little kind of concerned about the story, which otherwise seems fantastic because they've got, a, I think, a filmmaker on board. He's helped out with the, the script writing and the writing in it. So, and the writing is you know, evocative and... and touching and is handled with care but then having to repeat it kind of brings you back down to earth and you're like oh this is a game I have to you know keep throwing myself at it until mm. I get to the next level essentially James yeah I think you're right I think that's a very <laughs> video game idea that you know it's uh, you keep trying until you finally succeed and it doesn't necessarily mesh well with the narrative I don't think it's necessarily the finest game out there I haven't played it yet but I think as a harbinger of things to come the fact that games can approach this kind of theme in a grown-up way it's really it's an exciting development 
um, and the fact that a fairly decent, a decent sized company has put a decent amount of money behind this. They're not floating it as a kind of, oh, here's a concept piece that we thought we might do. They're, it's a major release from them. In terms of invented stuff, so we're talking about inventive themes uh, in terms of dealing with grim, grim stuff. Has there been any particular sort of gameplay elements you've seen this year that have really kind of, I don't know, really grabbed your attention in terms of this could be, you know, the next big thing in terms of the way we're just playing cards or, or placing things or, or anything like that? Mm. I'm, I'm going to talk about the mind again. I, I, this, my obsession for this year has been the mind. Oh, yeah. And I apologize profusely for this, but it's, it's a really simple game that does a thing that I've not seen other games do, which is that it forces you to read other players' body language. Who, and the, often, often the player is trying to communicate with you in a non-verbal way because it's a game in which you are not allowed to speak. You have to communicate. And when it works, it's almost like a psychic experience. It's, you feel like the group is completely in tune and you're on a, another level. And as the game goes on, it becomes more complex and it, the game gets more difficult with each level. Um, it's, it doesn't feel like anything else. It's not a mechanic as such, but it's a sensation that I've not had when playing a game before, and that's really interesting. I've got to say that when I've played that with some friends, every times, after, when you're doing quite, quite well, it, it is a very strange and unique feeling, especially sort of as we failed and started again. It might have helped that we were having a drink every time we failed. <laughs> so by the end, we were on roughly the same, same level of, but yeah, it's, it's really, <coughs> strange feeling. It's, it's, it's a game that depends heavily on the group. Either it'll work great and you'll mesh and you'll c combine your minds together, or it will crash and burn horribly. I've definitely had sessions of the mind where we've sat there just going, what are we doing? Like, <laughs> we're just, like, we were terrible I should say in those sessions, so it's our inability to count that might be at fault. You should uh, have had uh, shots. Uh, shots. <laughs> One for each card. When you hit 100 you're out, literally. <laughs> Oh, and have you tried the mind at all? I haven't tried the mind, but just to answer your original question about um, kind of emerging themes and games at the minute, I think story in general is having a real moment in board gaming. I think if you look at things like Fog of Love, like uh, Legacy of Dragonholt, you know, I think these sort of pseudo RPG elements are coming through into gaming. We are, are, are well, obviously they're in gaming, they're in RPGs, well done, Owen. Um, but they're coming into board games and uh, we're getting these narrative driven experiences, which I personally am a huge fan of. You know, I like um, kind of tactical or, or silly party games or whatever, but to me, what really draws me into any piece of media is compelling plot, you know, relatable characters, um, and I would love to see more people from a writing background, from a fiction background, coming in and co-designing games with folks who have more of a mechanical background. I, I hope that's something that we're going to continue to see expand. And then the other thing I think is the idea of um, obviously there are legacy games out there but I think we're starting to see the idea of a, a kind of one and done or a limited lifespan game even if it doesn't necessarily have uh, legacy elements. I'm thinking of things like the Exit series from uh, Inca and Marcus Brand which are escape room style puzzles um, where you play through this series of, of rooms represented by cards. They do some really interesting creative things, not just in terms of the puzzles being set, but the physical things that you can do with cards and booklets. And it's difficult to even talk about it without giving, giving away some of the secrets of the games. But those cost like 12, 15 quid. You can only ever play them once. But if you have you know, two or three fr friends around, that's cheaper than a night out at the movies. Um, and you get a great couple of hours, you have a couple of drinks, and uh, yeah, I, I, I'm interested to see more of that kind of consumable limited lifespan trend in games. 
Yeah, I will throw my weight behind it. Exit the game. I don't know if you played the Murder on the Orient Express or Murder yet, on the Something no. Express, uh, but that takes it further because you're not just solving puzzles. You then, at the end, it presents you with an actual murder mystery. And we right. went, oh, we were just doing the puzzles for fun. We have no idea who did this. But, and, and we got it wrong, clearly. Uh, but do you think we're seeing this kind of split? We're seeing, as you said, like these one-and-done games. I guess Keyforge, you could kind of count in that and that everything is different and, in a way, you're encouraged to pick up a new deck a little bit. But then we're also seeing legacy games that are replayable. You know, you can reset them. So there's a Spy Club where you have a scenario, or a campaign, you go through it, but you can slot all the cards back into their right places. Uh, yeah, I like haven't that. played uh, Spy Club, but I've heard good things about it, certainly. Um, I mean, for me, the, the thing about legacy games is we've only really, I think, seen one great one so far. I think Pandemic Legacy Season 1 um, kind of stands out above, you know, I played Season 2, enjoyed it quite a bit, but didn't think it was quite up to the same level. I see, I really like Season 2. Right, okay. But I really like Spy, uh, not Spyfall, I like Spyfall. I really like Seafall, so I'm probably in the wrong here. Right, okay. I'm the one person that likes Seafall <laughs> in the world. <laughs> Um, Which is good, because it, it makes it cheap to buy. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, you just need to find like, four other people who want well, to play yeah. it with you. But, um, I, haven't, I haven't played it. Friends are so also I, cheap yeah. to buy. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, really? I should have... All these years. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, if, if I think I, I played Charterstone and didn't really get into it so much, um, so this, there was this prediction that you know legacy games were going to become this huge thing and you wouldn't be able to get a replayable game anymore and it was terrible and it hasn't really happened because I think people are just learning that these things are really hard to design well. Uh, I'm sure we will see some more great ones, but it's, you know, it's one subsection of an evolving, innovative gaming industry and I don't think there's any... Uh, any kind of reason to um, to worry about it as some people were. Uh, it certainly hasn't slowed down. We've got Betrayal Legacy next month, I think, and then next year we've got Machi Koro Legacy. When, the, when does Rob Davio sleep? Never. He just opens another envelope and keeps <laughs> going. <laughs> James, how do you feel about legacy games from your perspective of games back decades and how they've kind of, uh, you know, spilled a yards winners 20, 30 years ago, very different to games today. Oh, completely. It's, I mean, the legacy thing is, is fascinating. I think, you know, almost picking up the idea of the, the role-playing game, which was the first open-ended game, the game that you could keep playing indefinitely. And I have friends who are still playing the same Empire of the Petal Throne campaign that they started at university in the mid-80s. And it's, I have tried to sit in on it, and there's just so much backlore in there that it's terrifying. It's never going to be, a legacy is never going to be a big thing. I'll be interested to see Machi Koro Legacy because I think that's, it's a much simpler game and a much more approachable game. Pandemic was always a, a kind of a step up from that. But the idea of games as ephemera is something that goes back a long way. A lot of games were not published as, as, as collectors. We treasure our games. We don't, we don't wrap them in plastic, but we do make sure all the components are back in there in the right order when we put them on the shelf and we take care of them. And I have games from when I started playing seriously in the 1980s um, and they're not in mint condition anymore, but they're still very, very playable. The idea of a game, if that's your mindset, then the idea of a game that you actively destroy or don't or change as you play it and then it then becomes unreplayable at the end is um, antithesis. I mean, it's almost heresy, but new people, we've probably, I'm probably preaching to the converted here, we've probably all been gaming for a while. There are new people coming into this industry, into this hobby all the time, every single month. The new games are bringing in new people, and I think legacy games, they'll just, they perceive that as just part of the gaming landscape. They don't know how new and potentially revolutionary it, it is. And they're absolutely fine buying a copy of Exit and tearing up the pieces and, and you know, binning it at the end of the night. And 
there's room for all of us. I just can't wait until you do Twilight Imperium Legacy, where you have to sink like 700 hours into a campaign. And 700 pounds, yes. probably. Oh, but there's, you know about War for North Africa, the legendary... Oh, the yes. really... It's about yeah. um, 1,200 hours playtime. It's a... It, replicates the entire North Africa, World War II North Africa campaign at squad level. Um, the rules go down to the, the legendary rule is that if you're playing the Italians, the Italians need more water rations because their food is pasta and they need extra water to boil the pasta. It's, I don't know anyone who has ever played it. It was, I think it was published as a bet. Um, <laughs> It's, you know, and that's, that's from the late 70s, and that's a legacy. Clearly, that's a legacy game. That would be a game that you would spend months and months and months playing, which is true of a lot of the big war games. These are not games you can finish in a single session. Essentially, that's a legacy game. Looking at the Spud of Yarsvenners, as you do. Uh, oh, frequently. So in the mid-90s, there was kind of this shift with Catan, yes. most specifically. You know, before that, there was a certain style of game, but Catan and but, you know, all the things around there, El Grande, that yes. kind of thing. There was a shift, and... I think a lot of people were surprised when Pandemic Legacy was a little overlooked when it came out. And now they've gone back and they've come up with a special award that they're giving back to it as if to say, well, maybe that was quite a big thing that we should have maybe done something with at the time. Do you think that we will see a shift in the Spiel des Jahres towards a, not necessarily legacy games, but a different style of, of game that reflects these modern games now, which are even different from Catan, let's say? I, I think so. I mean, the, the Spiel des Jahres, for those who don't know, the biggest games prize in the world, awarded annually in Germany. Um, in the 90s, it was basically one award, and then they brought in the uh, Kinderspiel for children's games as well. But it's fundamentally a game for an award for family games. And then later on in the 2000s, they brought in the Kennerspiel for expert games, you know, for hobbyist games, what we would what I think most of us would think of as, as proper games. Um, and Pandemic Legacy Season 1 was up for the, the Kennerspiel and didn't get it. And then retrospectively, as you say, this year got a special award. I run an award called the Diana Jones Award, and it's very easy to look back at your previous choices and go, man, we got it year wrong that year. There's only... I'm not going to say. <laughs> Tell us of your mistakes, James. I'm not going to uh, go there because I will make enemies. Um, but, you know, at the t- you make the... You, Give the award based on current information. It is only with retrospect I think you can go, okay, that game didn't live, didn't fulfill its potential, didn't find its market. Whereas this one that we didn't rate quite as highly has gone on to be as regarded, as much more highly regarded. And, uh, you know, we see this as games reviewers as well. Games that we paste or don't get on with personally go on to achieve high success. Um, I've been reviewing games for magazines since the early 1990s and some things which, you know, there is at least one modern classic that I gave a really horrid review to because I just didn't like it at all. Um, And I look back on that and I will go, um, it's a minor modern classic. And likewise, my own game Once Upon a Time, which is, you know, I, I hesitate to call it a minor modern classic, but it sold an awful lot of copies in an awful lot of languages. Um, Lester Smith, one of the great D&D designers and the designer of Dragon Dice, in, uh, gave it a slam in Dragon Magazine when it came out and said it has two, doesn't have enough rules. Um, uh, who's laughing now, Lester? Um, as reviewers, and I think this is an interesting point, we do get it wrong. You know, a, a review is a personal opinion, and, you know, we play with our personal games groups, and, you know, our friends have particular tastes, and some, sometimes a game flies, and sometimes it doesn't, and sometimes I replay a game, and, and it just goes in a completely different direction. 
So I don't think the um, the Spillers Yard jury got it wrong. I I'm not sure they should. Act. I think it's right to give it an award because it's a as a pandemic legacy. It's a groundbreaking game and sets a very very high standard for future legacy games. Um, but I think they also made the right decision at the time not to not to give it the Game of the Year award because it's not a game for everyone. It's a game for a very particular style of gamer. In particular, games groups that can meet on a regular basis. We have a copy, my, ga my games group. We're still stuck in April. April, the <laughs> Pandemic Legacy Season 1, because one of the members of the group moved to Greenwich. And said, oh, for the first year, he said, I'll come back, I'll come back and finish. And then he was, no, I'll get someone else to sit in for me. It's like, oh, we've moved on, man. So, I don't know if one day, one day. Ultimate Werewolf Legacy, which is another Rob Davio project because everything is nowadays. It requires a group of nine, the minimum player count is nine people and you need the same nine people. I'm not sure I know nine people. <laughs> <laughs> and so it just seems crazy. I mean, that must be, uh, Werewolf is popular, but getting the same nine people together on a regular basis. Well, it's a party game, right? So if you really like to party, then maybe it's the game for you. Really like to party and come over and go, we'll play this game again and again and again. No, please come back, please. We'll have some drink. <laughs> just don't let them leave. <laughs> <laughs> Back to dungeons. <laughs> and dragons, because this is a proper tabletop gaming podcast. Uh, Indeed. In terms of what you're looking forwards to, uh, is there anything that's on your radar that's coming up, either at Essen or, or next year, that's just been kickstarted? Anything that's particularly sort of thrilling your, your gaming senses? Owen, let's start with you. Oh, go to me first, why don't you? Um, a lot of the stuff that was interested is actually here this weekend, which is really pretty impressive. Excellent, well done, Owen. Yeah. That's fantastic. Um, I really wanted to play. He's not paid at all. He's paid for his work properly. We do ethics. Yeah, I was going to say, you know. <laughs> He's not paid to be on this stage and plug the show. That, he yeah. does that from the love of his heart. Anyway, um, <laughs> the, so some of the stuff that I've been looking forward to, Keyforge I obviously enjoyed. Uh, I got to play uh, Luxor, which was nominated for the Spiel des Jahres. Uh, I have uh, had a look at, oh, other stuff. It's been a very long weekend, and I've been on planes and things, so my, my brain is sort of failing. So what I'm going to do now is hand it over to Richard while I look up my Board Game Geek uh, list of stuff that I want to check out at Essen, and then I'm going to give you a, a really coherent and uh, articulate answer. Our external brains. So it's my turn for a coherent and articulate answer. Uh, no, um, so on the thought of things that are actually here, or at least um, are here in one form or another, um, Cubicle uh, 7 have just put out the new edition of the Warhammer a Fantasy RPG. It's in, I think, PDF-only form, form at the moment. There's a quick start guide thing down at their booth. Um, that's obviously something that's really very interesting. The review will be in the mag next month, I believe. Um, that's an interesting update of the second edition rules, which, for everyone cares, is from the early 2000s, I believe. But they, they skipped the third of... edition, great. They're skipping the kind of third edition, which was Fantasy yes, Flight, so they've gone back yes. to... Yeah. So the, they've gone back to sort of themselves, yes. I think, to an extent. Um, but they're also releasing an Age of Sigma RPG next year, which I had a chat with them about that, um, interestingly, the mechanics sound like they will, even though it's set in sort of quasi the same universe, the rules will be very, very, very different, and I'm really curious to see that. On the things that aren't here... Um, the, there are two games from one company, uh, Free League or Freilingen, who are the company behind Tales from the Loop and a few other things, um, A Mutant Year Zero. Um, Tales from the Loop got lots of, made lots of news last year, maybe the year before. It's sort of a, think of a RPG where you play as these spunky kids from an 80s adventure film and you go and find all these 
are dinosaurs in the woods, but of course the adults who are, as always in these films, too quick to dismiss the kids, don't, don't believe you, you've got to solve all those things yourself. Um, they're coming out with a sequel to that called Things from the Flood, which I believe essentially scales you up a few years, makes things sort of more mid-teens, um, using the same rules. But interestingly, one of the things in Tales from the Loop is that the worst thing, if you follow the rules, that could happen to your character is that you aren't allowed to play with your friends anymore. But uh, in this one, because you're considered a little bit older than if a monster slashes at you, then you might actually die, which is an interesting update. But they're, um, they're also coming out with sort of on the direct opposite side of things from playing some kids bouncing around the Swedish countryside is a game from them called Forbidden Lands, which is very much a throwback to sort of old school D&D, but hopefully with a slightly more a modern a rule set. But it's also got lots of very interesting art and lots of interesting ideas. That is, I believe, coming out soonish is the uh, only information we really have on the, uh, the, the release date. In terms of what I'm uh, looking forward to, I think I mentioned Betrayal Legacy, which Betrayal House on the Hill, again, I just have terrible taste in games. I like Seafall. I like Betrayal House on the Hill. It's is that because it's poor taste? Well, people don't like it because you roll dice and then you die a lot. And sometimes yeah, you get chased, fun. chased by a cat. <laughs> I think Betrayal Legacy could be really interesting if they uh, manage to put a proper storyline into it and kind of play off the fact that it's all over the place in kind of a glorious mess. So I'm really looking forward to that. That's Rob Davio as well. He made Seafall. You know, it could be good. It could be kind of bad. I'll probably like it either way. I don't care. Um, I'm also looking forward to Discover, which is the new game from Corey uh, Kineska, uh, who um, I think he worked on the latest version of Twilight Imperium. He's made things like, uh, blimey, my mind's gone blank. What's Corey Kineska made? I don't look at me. He's made a bunch of that. He made the original <laughs> Mansions got board of game Madness. Geek up. Mansions of Madness, that's what Corey made. Um, and Imperial Assault and things like that. But uh, like Keyforge, it's a different thing in every box. You get a different set of components and you're kind of just stuck somewhere. It could be an island, could be some mountains, could be a desert, uh, but you're stuck there. Uh, that's the main thing. And then you're trying to survive, but you're pitted against, well, you're kind of working with each other, but not necessarily. So if you find some beans and you think, I want these beans, someone else might ask you for them and you can just say, stuff it and eat the beans for yourself. Uh, so if you're a big fan of beans, <laughs> you know, that oh, might be the I game for you. I was thinking sort of Jack and the Beanstalk style. <laughs> Oh, like small, like runner beans? No, that's not runner beans. A magic beans? No, I think they're Too just like Too many the RPGs for me, I think. Hines. Other brands are available, obviously, uh, but they're inferior. James, what are you looking forward I, to? I was just reminded, you said desert. Nobody's mentioned Forbidden Skies, oh, which, gosh, uh, yes. which premiered here. Um, and the third part in the Forbidden series from Matt Leacock. I love Forbidden Island, I love Forbidden Desert, but I almost never play them. And I did not feel the need to rush out and buy this game. It's kind of like the other, his other co-op survival yes. game, right? Everyone thinks of Pandemic first and they go, oh right, he made this Forbidden stuff as well. But on the other but, hand, I have kids and we don't play Pandemic with the, with the kids because they would cry. Um, <laughs> Everyone's just, going to die. Died. Um, they, seriously, kids get very upset when you, you move a cube off a city and go, okay, that city's dead now. And they go, oh, no! Um, and Forbidden, the Forbidden series is much more friendly towards that. And Forbidden Skies does look lovely, but I just I didn't feel the need to put money down. It for lights it. up, I think. It lights up, it, yeah. There's a circuit, a circuit thing and there's magnets. It's it's really clever. And Matt was talking about this two years ago and talking about clever mechanics back then. Um, what am I looking forward to? I, outside the realm of games, I am 
full disclosure, I'm working on a history of games at the moment for a major British publisher with a major industry figure. Uh, and we haven't formally announced it yet, so I probably won't say it. Um, but it seems that there's, there's a bunch of other people doing exactly the same thing. We're start, finally, there's uh, respect being given to the history of games and why it's important. David Parlett, who was on uh, the History of Games panel earlier on, his seminal Oxford History of Board Games is coming back out from a different publisher, so it won't be the Oxford History of Board Games, it'll be Parlett's History of Board Games. That's coming out later this year. That is the definitive book in, in the area, until you get into the academic stuff, which just don't. Um, but there's also a major American publisher has commissioned a History of Games from two major American games designers, and again, they haven't announced publicly, and this came out... I was having a drink with one of them last week, and he said, what are you working on? I said, I'm doing this history of games. He said, I'm doing a history of games too. That was embarrassing. But so there's going to be a bunch of, and, but he's really good, and the guy he's working with is also really good. There's going to be a bunch of really interesting books about the history of games, shedding new light on that, and in particular, which historical games you should probably look at. Um, and then the one I'm working on as well, that'll be all right. Okay, so James is looking forward to James's book. Uh, Owen, let's I'm looking forward to, to finishing yeah, my well. book. Okay, so as a, a as a professional board gaming journalist with his finger on the pulse of the industry, um, I am looking forward to checking out uh, "Welcome to Your Perfect Home," um, which I know some people have played already, but it is like a roll and write game without dice. Uh, it's card based apparently, and uh, it is about trying to put together a, a very nice. House. Uh, I'm also looking forward to Between Two Castles of Mad King Ludwig because I have played Between Two Cities. Has anyone played that? Okay, that's more than I thought because it doesn't get half the respect it deserves. It's an awesome city building game. It's basically a drafting game where you've got tiles that you need to build into point scoring configurations, but you're building one city on each side of you in collaboration with the player to your left and right. So you have to prioritize things in all sorts of interesting ways. You kind of have to decide to screw one of your partners over for the benefit of the, the other one. Um, and that's being mashed up with Castles of Mad King Ludwig, which is either going to be really interesting and fascinating and great, or it's going to like fail horribly. Um, I hope it's the former, um, because I would love to, love to see another game in that series. Um, and then finally, because I know we're running a little bit short of time, I'm also looking forward to checking out uh, Mars Open Tabletop Golf, which sounds like it shouldn't be on the list, but my collaborator on the book, Matt Thrower, played it. You're playing golf on Mars. The box itself is the hole that you're trying to get your golf ball into. Your golf ball is a little flicky cardboard three-dimensional stand, and you can put spin on it. You can you know, uh, try and chip under it or put forward uh, momentum by flicking it to the top. But it does all these weird things. Like it says, OK, now that you've done the basic uh, kind of nine holes, go and get a chair, put it on the other side of the room, put the, the box that is the hole on the chair, put the, <laughs> the, the starting point on the table, put these obstacles in the way and try and flick it between two items of furniture and get it in the hole. Um, so, you know, dexterity games can be a bit of an acquired taste, I suppose, but this one looks like it just does some really madcap things, so I do want to try it out. I will say that on the note of dexterity games, if you played Seal Team Flicks, which no. is a fantastic name, first oh, of that's all. That's a brilliant name. Yeah, it's a really good, but it's a great dexterity game. It 
bloody hard. Okay. You're, you're a SWAT team, and you play on a board about this big that's like a dinner tray full of terrorists, uh, and then you flick discs at them and miss, and then die horribly. It's really good. Uh, a dinner it's tree, very, very hard. <laughs> a dinner tray full of terrorists is yeah. actually the name of my upcoming uh, military I think that's what they serve on novel. most Ryanair flights. Right, okay. Are you... <laughs> So these seals, are they the sort with guns or the sort with flippers? <laughs> <laughs> they're the sort with guns, but I mean, there's always room for expansion. Seal team, like, yeah, like there, there's, a, there's a middle ground there. Like Seals with guns could be a great game. Well, yeah, and taking down dolphins. <laughs> they're really smart. <laughs> they're much better than we are at flicking things. Uh, I think we might have time for a couple of questions if anyone in the audience has questions uh, that hopefully don't relate to dungeons or seals. Well, don't be shy. We did have a question uh, through Facebook from Mark Sosby. Uh, which was he wanted to know what are the gaming trends we think will be kind of that will come to prominence next year and what are the ones that are kind of exciting us I think we've touched on this a little bit but it'd be interesting to know if there's anything in particular uh, that you're sort of seeing emerging whether it's like roll and write or, or whatever yeah the roll and write thing's interesting I would be interested to see um, games with roll and write you know just as when Dominion came out and deck building became a thing and people did their own spins on it and used deck building as components in games that did other things I would like to see games with roll and write at their core but that tag on a couple of other elements I'd be really interested to see what people could do in that space Richard anything in the role playing space? I think that one of the interesting things in the 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 role-playing space is, I mean, I spoke earlier about um, some of the sort of RPG in a box, gemless RPGs and sort of the, the prevalence of storytelling. And I think that one of the great things is the amount of people playing RPGs is going up at a pretty impressive rate. There are huge amounts of reasons for that that I can't really get into right now because there's not enough time. But I think that it's, it's fascinating seeing these, seeing the... RPG in a box idea both be more simplified to allow people to sort of to to join in with that easier. A legacy of Dragonhold, which was mentioned by someone earlier, I think, is a great example of that. But also um, stuffed fables we picked up today. That's a great example of a way to get someone sort of starting to get into to the role playing scene. And I think that the growth of these things is really a positive move for for, for RPGs as a whole. James. I think Play Anywhere games are going to be really big um, or are going to be bigger than they are now. Games that you can stick in your pocket or stick in your laptop case or whatever it is. As gaming becomes more of a thing that people do and it's okay to do in part, I mean, I've been, I remember playing Cosmic Encounter in the 1980s on, in the cafe outside St. Martin's in the field and we were actually told to stop and go away. <laughs> Admittedly, it was Cosmic Encounter and we were about two hours in. But... Um, Gaming in public is, is just, it's a thing now. Don't do it outside because wind. But games, I think people are going to start developing games that you can play if there's a light breeze or games that it's fine to play on a tiny table in a cafe. There's a game I've just had in for review called Maiden's Quest from WizKids, which is, it's a solo deck builder, though you can play it with other people. And literally, you can stop at any point, just put a rubber band around your deck, stick it in your pocket, jump on the bus or whatever it is, get off, play another 10 minutes. It's really clever. And I think people are going to take that kind of ideas and we will start seeing board games or physical games in a lot more, uh, cropping up in a lot more places and people just impromptu groups playing a game for 10 or 15 minutes while they're waiting for their, their mates to arrive and they can go off and go watch a film or whatever. I think a lot of people are looking at that as a design space and a market space and there's some really interesting games that are going to come out of it. And just uh, when you're saying that, James, about um, kind of people 
playing games in, in solo modes. I think more designers are treating solo play as an important element in its own right now. If I think of things like uh, Gaia Project and other games, that there's actually a separate team who came in and designed the solo mode on top of the existing game. So I think um, that's, that's definitely a, a small trend that I see emerging. Yeah, and we're seeing things like Arkham Noir, uh, which is like a solo-only card game. And most of that stuff would normally just be print and play, but this was like a proper full-on thing that kind of matches up like... Uh, I was going to say Charles Bradley. It's not Charles Bradley. Um, uh, like noir writers uh, like Ray... Raymond Chandler. Chandler. That's, That's the one I'm trying to think of. Jesus Christ. Um, <laughs> and kind of, you know, Lovecraftian horror. Because Lovecraft isn't going to go away. But I think No, it's in the public domain, so it's cheap to use. Well, yeah, it's actually yeah. not going to go away. There's no escaping now. But uh, I think some people... There's still room there to do interesting things with tentacles. That came out wrong. Uh, but I think we're pretty much out of time. <laughs> so Just thank as you well, for, really. <laughs> thank you again to Owen Duffy on the end, Richard Jensen-Parks, James Wallace on my right, and thank you for putting up with us. Thanks. <laughs>